All right, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We're going to start with chapter 4, verse 25. But before we get into this section for um, today, I just want to explain what we were talking about last week regarding uh, worship. Because there were a few questions at the very end of our time together. And then I had a few questions after the Bible study as well. In the section of verse 21 to 23, uh, when Jesus responded to the Samaritan woman, he says, Believe me, the hour is coming when you'll neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking to t- such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, so we spoke about how the whole liturgical life is the center of our worship, right? And I, I just want to elaborate on, on what that really means. Okay, so I, I mentioned this concept as we were concluded um, about the extension of the liturgy into our entire life. Like, the liturgy doesn't just end whenever the priest dismisses everybody to go back out into the world, okay? It's not like the liturgy is restricted to those two or three hours during a Sunday morning service within these four walls that were, were gathered in this church building. Okay, so uh, Metropolitan Closest Way says, Let's reflect on what happened on the Last Supper. First, there was the Eucharistic meal, where Christ blessed the bread and gave it to the disciples. This is my body. And then he blessed the cup. This is my blood. The Eucharistic meal and the foot washing are a single mystery. So we have to apply that to ourselves. We go out from the liturgy to wash the feet of our fellow humans, literally and symbolically. This is how I understand the words at the end of the liturgy, let us go forth in peace. Peace is to be something dynamic within this broken world. It's not just a quality that we experience within the church walls. Okay? So, this worship that we see here is liturgical. Okay? And this life derives its source of energy from the church. The grace that we receive to go out and serve is from the core of our liturgical life. Okay, but the church isn't just limited to a specific location either. It's not like on this mountain or that mountain, like the Samaritan woman misunderstood Christ. Okay, Um, and and that's why when the apostles gathered for worship, they never gathered without the breaking of bread. So every time they gathered, it was a a Eucharistic meal. Every time they worshipped, it was a, a liturgical type of service. Okay, And that's why they insisted on building churches as well. In the first couple of centuries, there were little to no churches just because Christianity was illegal. But after the Edict of Milan in 313, uh, from the 4th, 5th century, uh, there were so many churches that Christians started to build because that was the essence of our liturgical life. The, The essence of our worship had to be within these church buildings. Okay? There's a little simple example I'll share with you, and then we'll move on to the, the section that, that we'll start with today. 
So there was a certain man that asked the priest, if God is everywhere, why do I need to go to church? What do I go to church for? So the priest replied, the whole atmosphere is filled with water. But when you want to drink, you have to go to a fountain or a well. Okay, so there is H2O in a gaseous form in the atmosphere, right? Like whenever you want to wipe your glasses, you go, and then you'll just wipe it with that moisture. There's moisture in the air, there's water in the air, right? Just the same way as God um, in His omnipresence, He's present everywhere, but we want to experience God, and, and when we want to worship, we go to the source of water, we go to the well, we go to the fountain, which is the church. Okay? So it's a very simple analogy to think about. It's not that we have no access to God outside of the church. And as a matter of fact, without that personal life with God and, and that personal relationship with God outside of the church, then what we do in the liturgy is worthless. Right? So the, the two are just one whole process. All right, any comments or questions there? Pretty good. All right, so let's start with verses 25 and 26. We'll just take these two for now. Okay, so the woman responded, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. All right. So she's basically like riding the edge of like falling into faith and belief and to commit to Christ. Right? She's like almost there. She, she recognizes that he's not just a prophet, but that he is the Messiah. And the proof for her to recognize that is that he reveals to her what's in her heart. Okay, And it's not necessarily that he will tell us all things in a generic sense. It's not like he'll tell you about the news in the world and like he knows what's going on out in the world. But you'll see like in a few verses later, in verse 29, that her testimony to everyone else to invite them to come to Christ is that she says, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. So this revelation is not just like a generic revelation about what exists in the world. He's, it's not like Christ is just telling her all the things around her, but He's telling her about all the things within her, all the things inside her, all the things pertaining to her personal life. That's why she says, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. It's not like, tell, come see the man that can tell you about the weather, can tell you about all of the historical facts in our culture. Like, this is someone who can tell you about your own soul. This is someone that can reveal to you what's deep in your heart. And, and that's what's special about the revelation of Christ. It's not a generic revelation, but it's a personal revelation. Again, this is not a small matter this is this is huge because our hearts are not so clear you know our hearts are are filled with dark corners 
Okay, and um, the scriptures tells it, uh, the heart is deceptive above all things. The heart of man is deceptive above all things. And it's hard for us to really recognize what's deep down in our hearts. So St. Augustine says the human heart is an abyss. Man is a vast deep. It's easier by far for him to number the hairs on his head than to know his feelings and movements within his heart. Okay? So, we can all relate to that when like, we're trying to really identify what's going on inside and sometimes we even fool ourselves and we pretend like that's how we really feel or that's what we believe but deep inside like we're just making excuses or we're covering a little part of our heart and we don't want to just come to terms with that and, and to expose what's actually there, what's really there. And if we try to do that on our own, we always fail. Right? And, and that's what really matters here. That, that's what I really want to stress, that when we try to identify what's in our heart by our own efforts, we'll always fail. Okay? Because it's God who reveals to us what's in our heart. It's not a personal effort. Right? It's the effort of God shining His light on our hearts. Okay? In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, St. Paul says, But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Okay? So it's God who searches our hearts and reveals to us what's really deep within our heart, right? And we spoke a little bit about this before, how it's His light that has to expose uh, our sins when we try to go through this process of self-examination for repentance and confession, right? It's not like a, a personal matter, but it's a matter of just humbly praying and exposing ourselves to God and, and allowing Him to reveal that. Okay, so this is something that she appreciated about God, right? She wasn't ashamed of the fact that he revealed to her what's really inside of her heart. And that says a lot because we're often afraid of what's really deep down inside and we don't want to come to terms with it. And I think... That's just because of uh, our shame or maybe our pride. But regardless of the reason, we don't appreciate whenever the darkness comes out. But for her, that was great. Okay, like there's a physician that exposed this wound. Like when you have a rash, you might be ashamed of what it looks like. But when you go to the physician and he takes a look, a look at it and he tells you, oh, this is what you really have, and this is the treatment that you need for it. This is the type of ointment that you need for it. So to her, it was redemptive, right? Like what Christ exposed allowed her to heal, okay? He exposed all of these sins and all of her insecurities, all of these problems, so that she can actually repent and come to Him, okay? So... She appreciates that and she, she, she says, 
that like I know the Messiah is coming and he will be the one to to tell us all of these things. Okay? So he responds and he says, I who speak to you am he. What does that mean? Like is Jesus saying like, yeah, I'm the one who will reveal to you all of these things inside of your heart? I'm the Messiah, okay? What's the significance of like the way he is saying this? Is he just saying like, yes, I am the Messiah? Or is there more to it? It's not really a humble proclamation. Okay. Okay, so it's definitely a more like intimate response. Like, yes, this is the person you're looking for. I, I'm, I'm the one who reveals what's inside your heart. Okay, and if you were to look at the actual phrase here in, in the Greek text, you realize that there is like a profound significance in it. So technically it would read this. The one who speaks to you, I am. Okay? Which is grammatically incorrect. So that's why it's translated, I who speak to you am he. But literally, he is saying, the one who speaks to you, I am. Does that ring a bell, that I am? What is that? Yeah. Yeah, because the, the Greek text is a little different. Okay? So what is the significance of that phrase, I am? Okay, close. You're, okay, go back to the Old Testament. Do you remember whenever God called Moses? And he's talking to God in this burning bush. And then he's like, okay, cool, I believe you. But if you send me out to Pharaoh and he asks me about this guy who sent you, like, what am I supposed to tell him? Like, I, I don't know your name. Who, who are you? <laughs> and then what does God say? I am who I am, right? And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that word is ego emi. Okay? So that was the title of God, Right? That was the way God identified himself. To the extent that when they would see this word in the scriptures, and they were reading, they wouldn't actually say it, because it was such a sacred word. Right? So they would say, Adonai, Lord. Right? But that, that word, I am he, was reserved for God, I am who I am, the self-existent, right? Like I'm above all names, like there, there's no way to name God. Like you can't circumscribe God in a name. So he's telling her that I'm the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. I'm the one who identified as, as God throughout all of these generations. Okay, so you get the significance here that there's a lot of substance to this response. Okay, and then there's a beautiful turning point because this is 
like a climactic moment in like transitioning from one scene to the next. Okay, so let's let's get into this next section. So read from twenty-seven to thirty. Okay. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, "What do you seek?" or "Why are you talking with her?" The woman then left her water pot, won her way into the city, and said to the men, "Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ?" Then they went out of the city and came to him. Okay, so she clearly believes. Right? There's not a single bit of doubt in her heart. Okay? And before we get into what this whole passage means, let's just like take a step back and and look at the progression of her faith. Okay? So, St. Ephraim the Syrian describes the way Christ like gently elevated her from like one level to the next. Okay, it's just like this beautiful gradual progression. So he says, If you are a king, why are you asking water from me? It was not thus that he had first revealed himself to her, but rather first as a Jew, and then as a prophet. And after that, as the Messiah. From degree to degree, he led her and placed her on the highest degree. She first saw him as someone thirsting, and then as Jew, then as a prophet, and after that as God. As someone thirsting, she persuaded him. As a Jew, she recoiled from him. As a learned one, she interrogated him. As a prophet, she was reprimanded, and as the Messiah, she worshipped him. So it's just a beautiful way to see how Christ like kept gently pulling her closer and closer and closer. Okay, and a lot of times that reflects our whole spiritual life. Like we're just like taking little baby steps, and then before you know it, like we are in a completely different place. Like our old habits disappeared or whatever problem we couldn't deal with is nothing that bothers us we're in a completely different area in in our spiritual life and so this is precisely how the spirit works it's it's a very dynamic process it's not like god just snaps his fingers and then we're just like magically saints and devoted to him and entirely committed to God. Okay, but it happens through this conversation. Okay, and so long as we are consistent in conversing with God, we will progress from one degree to the next. Because this whole progression just happened at the well, through a conversation with God, and that's how we progress, through prayer. The more we pray, the more... God elevates us from one degree to the next. Okay? So, going back to these three or four verses here. Okay, the disciples come 
at a very strange time. Okay, and I don't think it was coincidental that they came at a time that, like you could say, it's the most climactic part in the conversation. Right? So they were shocked. Right? They didn't dare to ask him, like, why are you talking to a woman? Right? Like, th- this goes to show how they, they, they respected his judgment and the honor that he gave everyone, even a woman, and not just anyone, but a Samaritan woman. Okay, so uh, this says a lot about just the equality that, that God gives all of us, and especially these uh, gender differences that a lot of people uh, confuse and uh, a lot of people don't really understand. Okay, so Origen says, when the disciples arrived, they're amazed, for they previously beheld the greatness of the divinity in him, And they marveled that so great a man was speaking with a woman. We, however, carried away with pride and arrogance, despise those below us and forget that the words, let us make man according to our image and according to our likeness, apply to each person. Okay? So we can't forget that the dignity and the honor that God gave to humanity is equal among men and women, okay? And this is something that, like, challenged them enough, like, they were so convicted by it that they were too embarrassed to even ask about it, okay? So, going back to, to this timing, okay, this happens exactly at the time of his confession. This, this, proclamation of his divinity. Okay, this is when he says, I am he. Okay, ego ami. Alright, so, these words were intended for his disciples just as much as they were intended for her. Okay, because it was just as important for them to recognize his true identity as, as it was for the Samaritan woman to realize that as well, okay? So this truth is essential for all of us to, to realize that we can't have a relationship with Christ in a superficial way. Like we have to recognize God in His true nature, like to recognize that He is our God, to recognize that He is a consuming fire, to recognize that Yes, He is our friend, but He is the Lord of Lords. He is the Creator. And that's something that we can never forget. And as we progress in our relationship with God, that becomes like a central foundation. And and it keeps us in line. It keeps us in the right faith. Okay? So, how does she respond when, when He tells her that, I am He? Uh, yes, I am the Messiah that you're speaking about. Hmm? Okay, yes, she believed. But what did she say? Did she say, yes, I believe? Like, how do you know that she believed? 
Exactly. So, so what she did spoke for what she believed. That right there is the essence of our faith. What speaks for what you believe is not what you say, but what you do. And so she went away and served. She went away and preached. She evangelized. That speaks volume. It's not just like, oh yes, I believe. And then, sure, we do need to affirm that with our words, right? But you know what they say, words are just words, right? You got to put your money where your mouth is. And that's literally what she did because she died for her words. She, she was actually martyred. And we spoke about this uh, about like three or four sessions ago. I forget how long we've been on this passage. But we, we know that she was martyred for her faith, right? Along with her whole family, actually. Anyways, so St. John Chrysostom says the Jews who were constantly asking the question, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. This is in John 10.24. The Lord didn't give them a satisfying answer. However, he clearly informs the woman saying, I am he. Because unlike the Jews, she was not biased and possessed a fair mind and conscience. They didn't ask in order to learn and were constantly mocking him. In contrast, she listened and believed and called others as well to the faith. On the whole, she's remarkable in her timing, control, and faith. Okay? Okay, so let's dissect her response. Okay, we spoke about her response in general. But let's look at all of the components and the way she responded. All right, so tell me some, some of the finer details in the way she responded. She left her water pot. Okay, what's the significance there? Good, good. So she left her past behind. Okay, that's, that's one thing. She left her past behind. All the guilt and the shame. And we just spoke about this two days ago in the sermon because that was the theme of our meditation. Okay, so she left all of her past sinful, lustful behavior behind. That's what we can think about symbolizing the water pot. Like, the water pot to her was the shameful walks to the well. To her, it was the life of sin. It was the life as an outcast. It was the life of one failure after another. Okay? So imagine every morning she would wake up and look at the water pot and she would think about those dreadful walks in the middle of the day to go to the well and it would just remind her of her miserable sinful life. So that's what she left behind. Okay? So... You can think about this, this transition in leaving the water pot behind and moving forward as the essence of repentance. Okay? That word repentance, metanoia, literally means a change of mind. So there was a change. Okay? She left the past behind and went forward. Okay? So 
Satan kisses him, says, Observe her zeal and wisdom. She came to draw water, and when she had been enlightened by the true well, she then despised the material one. So she accepted the living water and despised the material water. Teaching us even by this trifling instance, when we're listening to the spiritual matters to overlook the things of this life and make no account of them. Okay? So she left the physical water behind for the living water. Okay? So there has to be a real change. Whenever we talk about repentance, we don't just like appreciate it as a concept. Yeah, it sounds nice. But when I leave my sins behind, that means I cling to a life of faith, a life of righteousness. When, when I go to confess, I don't just do it as a protocol, like a formality. And that's what we did as children. Like You kind of go through the motions, I confess, but I know I'm going to go back to talking the way I'm talking and listening to the same music I listen to. But if I confess and I repent, there's at least an intention to change. Whether you go back to it because of your weaknesses or not is, is a different issue. But there has to be an intention to truly change, to leave the water pot behind and to disconnect from that sin and to live with faith, to live with purity. Okay, what else? There's a couple of other things we can say about leaving the water pot behind. Okay. Good. Good. So she transitioned from this shameful, embarrassed type of life to a brave, courageous life. Okay? And I mean, there's a lot to say about the way she preached as well. Okay? Before we get into that, a couple of other points I want to just mention in, in the way that she left her water pot behind and, and walked away from that. I think we can also consider that she left her human reason and her logic behind and just embraced a life of faith. Because if you think about what she always did in going to fill her water pot, it was basically like the, the daily work that she had to do, right? It was basically like the, the physical means of retrieving water, right? That's logically what you do when you want water. You go to the well and you drop your water pot down into the well and you retrieve water, okay? You don't need any sort of faith to do that. Like it's just human logic. Right? But she exchanged the physical means for the spiritual means. Okay? Um, like when you want to get something done, our minds almost always think about rational solutions. Okay? And that's not wrong. But we need to train our minds to think about the spiritual solutions first. Like anytime there's a problem, before we start to think, let's just pause and pray. Right? There's... A solution of faith. There's a spiritual solution. Not to just, okay, let's calculate what would happen if I do this, or what would happen if I do that. Let's weigh the pros and the cons, and 
men get in trouble with this a lot because we're like more logical and I'm very bad at this. And I try to sol solve everything with my mind. And then and I realize like my head is spinning like, wait, pause. Like go back to what the saints like St. Pope Carlos did to just pray and to put it in God's hands and to just focus on the spiritual means to move forward as opposed to the physical or logical, the rational means. Not that the mind and the, these rational solutions are wrong. They're, it's important to use the mind that God gave us. right? But it's almost like, if you remember the, the icon with uh, St. Philippetier Mercurius, what do you see in the icon? Okay, is he holding both swords? So you know that the story goes like the angel appeared to him and he gave him a heavenly sword. What did he do with it? Some of the icons do have him holding both swords up. But I don't, I'm not a fan of those icons. <laughs> those are just a few. Most of them actually have one sword in its sheath and the other one he's holding up. And the meditation behind that is when the angel gave him the heavenly sword, he put the earthly sword away and he used the heavenly one. Okay? And I think when, when we have the living water, we forget about the physical water. Okay? So, I think when you have that spiritual sword, you use spiritual means like you use God's word and the scriptures to solve your problems. You use the virtues in the spiritual path. Like you use love to solve your problems. You use purity of heart. You use prayer. You use all of these spiritual swords as opposed to our physical means. Okay? So she left behind these physical or these materialistic means of taking care of her daily life. She, she embarked on a life of faith. Okay? And that's, that's essential for us to, to be real, true Christians. Okay? Any questions about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did. So some of the icons have him holding both of them. Right? But, but some of the icons also have him putting one in his, in his sheath. Well, because the story... But he has two. One is in his sheath and one is in his arm. To show that he's using the one that God gave him. Right? Because he originally had one, like his earthly sword, just the one that's made with physical matter. Right? But the story goes that the angel gave him a sword when, when God um, sent the angel to him. Okay. Okay? Yeah. You'll, see, you'll see a lot of them with, with, uh, with the one. Okay? But um, this, this plays a significant role in her evangelism too. Okay? Just like what, what Jenny was pointing to a little bit earlier. Okay, so 
that's, uh, that's a very important uh, concept about leaving the water pot behind. And then uh, I would say that um, like the way that she left her water pot behind was a quick way, right? Like you can get a sense that she was in a rush. She didn't even say a word to him. Like, that still boggles my mind. Like, at least tell him how you feel. <laughs> or, or if she did say something, why isn't it recorded? Like, clearly, there's a rush. Okay? And if you look at the, the Greek word that is in the text, that when, when it says that she went away, that word is epilthin, which isn't just like leaving, but it's leaving in a hurry, leaving in a rush. Okay? So you can sense that she was like trying to, to go back out without carrying any weight. Like when you're in a rush, you want to travel light. Right? Like if you're running a race, you don't want to carry a big load. You know what I mean? So she wanted to go and to serve. Okay? And she knew that the only way to do this is with an eager heart. With like a a, a sense of alacrity. Like you don't want to just like, oh, I'll get to it when I get to it. You know, and a lot of times we have that mindset. Like... I'm the king of procrastination. Like, you want to learn how to procrastinate? Come talk to me. I could write a book. Okay? This wasn't St. Fotini. Like, she was on a mission, and she was on a mission to do it as quickly as possible. Okay? And that's why, like, if you see here, verse 29, she says, Come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? In the very next verse, verse 30, Then they went out of the city and came to him. Not only did she go out quickly, but the effects of her work were just as quick as her work. You see what I mean? So I think when we work quickly, we also see quick results. It's not always the case, but like when we put our heart into our work, then we're cooperating with the Spirit of God. Okay? God has no interest in just delaying us. Like God wants to satisfy us as soon as possible. He only delays us whenever it's for our benefit. But God isn't just like, I want, I want everybody to slow down and to wait forever to get this done or to see the results that they want to actually see. Okay? Unless there is a reason, right? But, but when, when you start to do a good work, God wants to complete it. And God wants to make it fruitful. Okay? And, and when we're doing the work of an evangelist, like God doesn't delay to care for His children. Like in the, um, the three parables you see in Luke 15, there's the parable of the lost sheep. As soon as He notices that the lost sheep is gone. He doesn't just sit around and wait. He goes out right away. Right? And so when we're doing His work to serve and to bring the lost sheep, 
and we're doing that with an eager heart, God is blessing our work. Okay? And yes, sometimes we wait. And when we do wait and we see a delay, it's for a better reason. But I, I just want you to, to realize that God wants us to see fruits as soon as possible. If, we're, if the fruits are delayed, it's for a different reason. Okay? All right, so Abuna Tadris Malati says, she left her water pot because she didn't want it to impede her from running to the city and giving testimony to the truth. She informed everyone in the streets that she had found the treasure she's been looking for and that she's found the source of her inner joy. It's like when you win the lottery, like you'll just go bragging about it the moment it happens. There is no delay. Okay? And when you find God, you don't delay. You want to share the good news with everyone. Okay? And I think if that eagerness isn't there, we have to ask ourselves if His joy is truly radiating in our hearts. Because if it is, the natural result is to share it. It just naturally galvanizes our hearts. Okay? Now, she went to preach, right? Now, the fathers call her equal to the apostles. And in a sense, she is the first evangelist. Okay? She went to evangelize before any of the disciples. Okay? And she does this in a spirit of faith. Okay? And just like how we reflected on the way she left her water pot as an indication of leaving all of these like physical or materialistic means of achieving her goals, you can say that she didn't depend on any materialistic means to serve. It's as if she knew what Christ told his disciples when he sent them out. Right? So in the passage when he sent them out to serve, he says, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Why does he send them out without having any of these resources? Why do you think he sent them out that way? Empty-handed. Hmm. Yeah. Exactly. They are going totally dependent on God. And that's what she did right there. She went out with faith. Like, I've got nothing to work with, but I'm just going to preach. Okay? St. John Chrysostom says, What the apostles did, this woman also did according to her ability. They, when they were called, left their nets. She, of her own accord, without any command, leaves her water pot and, elevated by joy, performs the work of evangelists. And she calls not one or two, as did Andrew and Philip, but having aroused a whole city and people, she brought them to him. Right? Look at how her evangelism even exceeds the apostles. She wasn't even instructed to go. And... I love when people come to me like, Abuna, 
I want to serve, what can I do? Like, God bless your heart. I'm like begging everybody else to, to help out. Like, uh, you're coming from your own will. Like, nothing better than that. I've got some work for you. Let me, <laughs> let me tell you where I can use you. Okay? But a lot of times, like, we're chasing after people to serve. And like, ah, Buna, yes, I'll do this. Sure. Um, I have a lot on my plate. Uh, and some of it is valid. I'm not denying that. Right? But like, I remember when I was younger and I would see Abuna and he's talking about, you know, uh, cleaning up or just something as simple as setting up the church for Palm Sunday and like I know we're going to have to sit in there and do a lot of work and I'm like, oh shoot, Abuna's right there. I'm looking the other way and I just like try, try to hide right away. Okay, so I, I just can't tell you enough how important it is for us to follow the example of the Samaritan woman, to just go out from our own will, like to voluntarily seek that service. Okay? Now, in, in, in preaching, just like what Jenny was saying earlier, this was some risky business for her. She's a Samaritan woman with a filthy past. Okay? She was trying to avoid everyone in the city. She was going the worst time of day so that no one would see her. But now she is going to the people. Right? It's one thing if she's like, okay, I'm going to go back. If I run into people, then so be it. Right? At least that would be a step closer to the recovery process, it's a little bit better than just avoiding everyone. She was like anti-social. Okay, but now, she doesn't just go to, you know, casually go about her life. No, she's actually chasing after people. And, of course, it wasn't like walking down a red carpet with rose petals. It was like people mocking her, like people accusing her of hypocrisy, like, who are you to tell us about this or that? Like, we know what your past is like. And you know, a lot of people will come and talk to me about service. But Abuna, I used to like, do all of this stuff, and I feel ashamed. How, who am I to serve? I'm like, who is anyone to serve? We've all stumbled. We've all made mistakes. And if you just drag that past with you, You'll never have the courage of the apostles, like St. Paul who murdered and persecuted the church. Just served and preached, depending on God, not carrying the weight of his, his past. Okay? She even went where the disciples were forbidden, because the Gentiles didn't receive the gospel. The gospel first went to the Jews. And when Christ sent out the disciples, He instructed them. He says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the, fo- with the following instructions, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any of the towns of the Samaritans. That's in Matthew 10.5. He forbade them from going into the town of the Samaritans. Why? Because they weren't ready yet. It was going to be too difficult for them. Like, 
You know whenever you want to ask someone a favor? Like you want to butter them up a little bit so that, <laughs> so that they're ready to receive it? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, spouses know about this, this whole game. She's like, look, uh, I, I didn't butter up the Samaritans yet. Like you're not going to be able to go and talk to them. As a matter of fact, you're not allowed to go talk to them. Right? He forbade them from going. She went. And not only did she go, but she succeeded. Because she left her water pot behind. She went with faith, depending on God. Okay? Hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect question. Um, let's get to that in one second. I want to share with you one little thought about this, and then we'll get to that, because that has so much significance to it as well. Right? So she asks this, this question, right? but before that, her testimony is not like any sort of theoretical idea about this man. Like, she's speaking to people about her own experience. And so the first thing she says, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Okay? So, we'll get to the question in a second. Because they're both actually connected. But before she says, could this be the Christ? She says, let me tell you about someone who just pierced my heart. And I think we, we, we reject this, this part of our Christian life as if talking about our own experiences is prideful and it's, it's like just a superficial way of interacting with people, whatever. But there's, there's no problem with telling people about our real experience with God. When we talk about our experience with God, the only problem is whenever it comes from a place of pride. Okay? So... Yes, so let me tell you about... I had this struggle and then, like, God you know, moved all of these pieces around and, it, you know, I didn't think that this was going to work, but it ended up working. And then, like, you're telling people about how God, like, changed the whole situation and how He worked in your life in this amazing way. Right? It's your own personal testimony. You're not bragging, but you're telling somebody like, oh, this was just a beautiful experience. Look how amazing God is. Does that make sense? No, it's not. It's not because a lot of people are unwilling to do that because they, they, they suspect, oh, I can't talk about what God did in my life because I'm bragging. And, yeah. and, and, it's, and it's confused with like, oh, this is like a more superficial way. And it can be prideful, it can be superficial, but I think if it comes from the right place, and I'm not bragging about what... I personally did. I'm, I'm bragging about God. And we should brag about God. That's important. 
Peter. Yeah, so she exchanged the physical water for the living water. So in a sense, like, she is satisfied. Like, she left the lust behind, and now, like, she has this living water. And, and I think, like, that's what fueled her faith. Like, she's no longer thirsting for the sins of the world. Um, and, and that's what always happens whenever we really experience God. Like, our the thirst of our soul is quenched. So that's a perfect way to look at it. Okay, so, of course, she speaks of her own experience in this way, and, and it's, a, it's a powerful way to communicate the way God works in our life without imposing on people, okay? And I think that ties into the, the question that she asks as well. Okay, so St. John Chrysostom says, observe too how prudently she speaks. She didn't say, come and see the Christ. But with the same condescension by which Christ captivated her, so just as Christ like, lowered himself for her, she draws men to him. Come, she says, see a man who told me all that I ever did. She was not ashamed to say that he told me all that I ever did. Okay, so there's an important part to recognize. Like, for her to say, he told me about my life, is for her to say he exposed a lot of shame. Because people know that she was not living a good life. Okay? He goes on to say, she was not ashamed to say that he told me all that I ever did, so she might have spoken otherwise, come, see the one that prophesies. She could have just said that. Like, come see a prophet. He will reveal to you whatever you want to hear. But she said, come see the one who told me things about my own personal life. Okay, so when the soul is inflamed with holy fire, it looks then to nothing earthly, neither to glory nor to shame, but belongs to one thing alone, the flame which occupies it. Okay, so she didn't go bragging about how she had this uh, amazing conversation with somebody that gave her all this attention, but at the same time, she wasn't trying to cover the shame of her past. So she was actually so courageous that she said, yeah, he told me about my life. He told me about all the stuff that I did before. Okay? And this is like the heart of evangelism. Okay, so I'll just leave you with this thought to conclude because I know we're a little past eight. She asks a question, and this goes back to what Jean was just asking, because she doesn't want to impose on people. Like, what's more inviting than just like making a suggestion or asking someone a question? You're not forcing what you believe onto other people. Okay, so that's what a Christian does. 
a Christian just asks a question, just makes a suggestion to invite people. She didn't say, you have to come and see this. You have to do this. Like, look, you got to go there. Like, it wasn't like she was demanding. She was like, could this be? Maybe it'll spark like a sense of curiosity. Like, maybe it, it can make you a little interested to go and to hear from this person. So that this invitation that, that ultimately sparks that sense of curiosity would actually compel them to go from their own will. So when you're not forced, you're actually going voluntarily. And there's nothing more powerful than that. Okay, so I'll leave you with this. St. John Chrysostom says, She didn't say, come, believe. But she said, come and see. A gentler expression than the other. And one which more attracted them. Do you see the wisdom of this woman? She knew certainly that having but tasted that well, they would be affected in the same manner as herself. Okay, and I think that's just a powerful way to invite others to Christ. And we have to invite others to Christ. Otherwise, we're not living a Christian life. We're just living an isolated life, an individualistic life. Okay? Any comments, questions? Alright. If you have any questions or comments, you can tell me after we pray. Sorry I kept you a couple minutes late. Um, We'll conclude there. Glory be to God forever. Amen.